At an average cruising speed of 102,600 miles per hour, Amuamua didn't dally in our corner of the Milky Way for long. No, it blew past Earth so quickly and with so little warning that we had very little time to observe it. Which begs the question, if this interstellar object was, in fact, an alien light sail, as Avi Loeb, our Harvard astronomer, hypothesized, it didn't seem all that interested in visiting us. So if it's an interstellar probe, they're missing all the good stuff. Uh, they're not doing the, the, you know, the real sightseeing tour of our solar system. So if it was aliens, maybe they had better places to be, more exciting planets to visit than our pale blue dot. Maybe if the galaxy is teeming with life, the kind of life that builds light sails for scouting missions, we're just one in a million and not all that interesting. Or maybe aliens already know all about us. They've visited, taken photos, collected samples. In fact, some people think they've been coming since at least 1947, when they made a spectacular appearance outside the rural community of Roswell, New Mexico. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucer. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs which landed on a ranch outside Rothwell. Was it proof of alien visitation? Of life beyond Earth? Of technology we can't even imagine? I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Space Invaders, a series about the search for extraterrestrial life, where we're looking, what we're looking for, and why we hope we're not alone. The landscape around Roswell inspires a sort of awe. Not that it's particularly beautiful or filled with stunning vistas and landmarks. It's more about the sheer expanse of it. Tufts of green grasses punctuated by the occasional chola cactus stretch off into the distance. Miles of barbed wire fences and the occasional cluster of cows parked around a watering hole. But it's the sky that's by far the biggest feature out here. It dominates what you see when you look out over the land. Anything that breaks up the sheer expanse of it catches your eye. A streak of movement, an odd shape, a flashing light. And with such a monotonous landscape below it, anything unusual stands out here, too. Like, say, the wrecked pieces of metal and wood scattered over the desert. As far as the incident, July of 1947... There was a ranch foreman 65 miles northwest of here. At night during a thunderstorm, he heard a sound louder than thunder. An explosion of some kind. He went out the next morning on horseback, check his sheep, look at his windmills for damage. Came upon a debris field, pieces of something scattered three quarters of a mile long by several hundred yards wide. That ranch foreman was William Mac Brazell. And unknowingly, he'd just become the central character in one of America's most well-known conspiracy theories. Now, the rancher had no idea what this stuff was. So he loaded some in his pickup, came to town, he gave it to Sheriff Wilcox. The sheriff didn't know what it was either, so he contacted the military. Got a hold of Major Marcel. Marcel and his assistant, Captain Cavett, went up to the ranch. It was late, loaded their vehicles with some of the debris and came back to town. 
Dennis Balthaser stands with me next to the padlock chain link fence surrounding an old army airfield. The wind gusts past as deep purple storm clouds build and blacken in the distance. Thunder growls and rumbles, lending a pitch-perfect soundtrack to his story. Dennis is a ufologist, an author, and the owner and guide of Roswell UFO Tours. I have been living in Roswell since 1996. I've been interested in this Roswell incident and UFO information in general for about 30 years. My background is civil engineering. And then for the last seven years, I've been doing Roswell UFO tours. Nobody had ever thought about doing them. And when I started doing them, I thought maybe I'd do two or three a month. I do two a day, five days a week. Starts about March, spring breaks, and it ends about November. I've had people from all over the world. I've had people from London, Tokyo, China, South Africa, Australia. His tours fill up quickly, but it's a weekend, and Dennis doesn't work weekends, so he's not leading one today. Especially because this weekend is the Roswell UFO Festival, which he has extremely strong opinions about. You know, I'm not in town for the festival. It's a circus. People dressed up in tinfoil hats, dogs dressed up like aliens. Do you have a tinfoil hat on under that cowboy hat? No, I don't. <laughs> and I won't. <laughs> Every so often I have somebody show up and tour with a tinfoil hat, and I said, take it off, we're not doing that. <laughs> I think Ross was more interested in selling T-shirts and the Arm Preserving History of this stuff. I am not wearing a T-shirt or a tinfoil hat yet, but it's early still. And who knows what might happen at this UFO-themed festival in a remote desert town where aliens may have traveled billions of miles across the galaxy to ultimately smash their spaceship into a rancher's land. Even decades later, the story brings thousands of people to this town. For the fun of it, yes. But also because they want to know just what happened here in Roswell. Dennis, in a cowboy hat that befits his accent, leads me through the timeline of those July 1947 events, a story that put Roswell on the map. As we already heard, rancher Mac Brazell found debris, reported it to the sheriff, who then reported it to the military, who brought the debris back to the Army airfield on the edge of town. That happened on July 7th. On July 8th, the base commander was Colonel Blanchard. He was head of the atomic bomb group and the base commander. He called his public relations officer, Walter Hardin, and said, write an article for both papers and both radio stations. An official press release saying the military had captured the remains of a flying disc. The next morning, July 9th, General Ramey in Fort Worth, Texas, put out an article saying it was nothing but a weather balloon. So 14 hours from the time we have a flying saucer in the paper, the next day, the next morning, according to Ramey, it's a weather balloon. Young people today have a hard time believing back in 47, people actually respected the government. So when Ramey said it was a weather balloon, that was the end of the story. It died. Nothing was said or done about Roswell for 30 years. The debris ended up at the Roswell Army Airfield, inside a nondescript beige building formerly known as Hangar 84, right on the other side of the fence from where we're standing. The hangar where they brought the debris and the bodies, when they brought them in from the ranch. Yes. He said bodies. In addition to a total UFO, some reports of the incident allege there were alien bodies in that debris field, although I was never clear on just how many. But you got to consider those bodies laid out in the desert for about four days, 100 degrees, they were pretty rank. 
By the time they brought him to the hospital, they had deteriorated quite a bit. So they did a quick examination there, took him to Hangar 84, and then shipped him out of here in a hurry because they had to get rid of him. Where'd they go? Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, known as Wright Field back then. Today, they could be at Area 51 in Nevada. Better security. Area 51 is a highly classified United States Air Force facility. The military says it's where they develop and test experimental aircraft and weapons systems. Understandably, they're not too keen on people poking around asking questions, which only makes you wonder what else they might be doing out there in the desert, like hoarding UFO parts. Anyway, in addition to the alleged bodies, and some people say there were no bodies, the crash site supposedly contained a lot of other interesting items. There's been rumors that uh, fiber optics may have come from the craft, uh, different products that we have today that could have possibly come out of that craft. There was a material. You could take the material, crumble it up, and in about 15 seconds it went back to its original shape. No creases. Today the military has similar material. They call it memory material. I don't know if they're using it, but I'd like to know where they got the technology. Dennis still doesn't think the government's figured it out. Do we know what the craft was? No. When an airplane crashes, you have a picture of it, a drawing. You can put it back together, and they do that daily. When an airplane crashes, they reassemble it to find out what happened. We don't know what this looks like. They say a disc, the propulsion system, the guidance system. That would be total foreign stuff from what we know. So I don't see any way that we would really know what it looked like. Which may be why they've kept such a tight lid on what actually happened. I would not be surprised that 72 years later they're still back engineering it, trying to figure out what we got. But they've lied for so long that I don't think they can get out of it. No surprise that people think the government is lying, especially in an area where there was all kinds of nuclear testing, and most of the citizens were kept in the dark about the dangers. From July of 1945, when the U.S. government detonated the first atomic bomb and gave no warning or protection to the neighboring communities, right up until today, when lethal radioactive waste from government projects seeps into the groundwater of New Mexico, the government hasn't won a lot of trust in these parts. So it's understandable that many people don't believe the military's denials. I asked Dennis if there's anything left to see of the crash site, which was actually about 30 miles north of Roswell, or 55 miles west by northwest of Roswell, or 75 miles northwest of Roswell. See, there's a little confusion about where the craft actually came down. It's 95 miles northwest of here. I've been there several times with film crews and, and uh, researchers. There's nothing to see. They did a dig, the Sci-Fi Channel sponsored. They had the University of New Mexico archaeological group involved. I was out there for the last day of it. They took 64 bags of material and didn't find a thing. We did ground-penetrating radar, didn't find a thing. When they cleaned that up, they did a good job. There was nothing left. And Dennis isn't sure we'll ever get the answers about what actually happened here. Basically, what I want is the truth. And I don't think we've been told the truth in 72 years. So I think it's time they do. Now, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news, but the Defense Department finally had to admit that they've been doing this research. They had a $22 million budget for something like six or seven years at the Department of Defense. That's big. The Pentagon's secret UFO program. 
This comes up a lot because it's real, and we're going to hear more about it in the next episode. I'll be 78 in October. You guys are young enough, hopefully in your lifetime, you know the truth. And I can go either way. If it turns out not to be aliens, that's fine. I'll go fishing. I don't need this. The frustration I go through, the the expense over the years. But in the meantime, he's going to keep looking. They tell me Australia is there, but I've never seen it. So I have to assume it is. I, I can't be egotistical enough to think we're the only thing in the universe. And I'm a Christian. That surprises a lot of people. But I'm under the impression if you believe God created everything, that's the end of the story. The Bible doesn't say we're the only thing there is. I just can't think we're the only thing in the universe. This little ball of mud that we live on, there's got to be more out there than that. Sounds like we're about to get a storm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. I really right. appreciate your time. Keep in touch. I Thank will. You. you got my email. We do. Take care. All right. Wild Thing fans, I have a serious message for you. If you're not already talking to your kids about aliens, it's probably time to start. Just this year alone, the James Webb Space Telescope found distant planets that might harbor life. Archaeologists claimed to have found mummified aliens. And extraterrestrials even got a shout-out during congressional hearings. No doubt your kids are asking lots of questions, and it could be you're not sure how to answer them. Let me recommend my new book, Is There Anybody Out There?, which arrives on Earth on October 3rd. This middle-grade book, based on season two of Wild Thing, explores the question of whether we're alone in the universe using science, humor, and fun illustrations. And it'll leave everyone better prepared for the possibility of alien life. Help kids learn how to tell the difference between science fact and science fiction. Look for Is There Anybody Out There in all bookstores and online. Or for more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com. Leaving Dennis behind, I head into Roswell City proper. As I mentioned, it's the weekend of the town's annual UFO festival, marking 73 years since a UFO supposedly crashed nearby. Dennis gave us the basic overview, but to recap... On July 8th, the military's initial press release actually referred to the debris as having come from a, quote, flying disc. The American Broadcasting Company and affiliated stations present Headline Edition with Taylor Grant. Today's edition presents a roundup of the latest developments in the finding of a flying disc. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange disks had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. By the next day, July 9th, the military had issued a second press release, claiming the material actually came from a conventional weather balloon. With that, the story vanished off the radar for another 30 years. But in the late 1970s, UFO researchers started looking into Roswell again. Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist with a side interest in UFOs, interviewed Jesse Marcel, a former Army major, who'd been stationed at Roswell Army Air Force Base in 1947. Marcel had helped pick up the debris from the crash and claimed that what he'd seen was, quote, not of this world. It was certainly not, as the military had claimed, a weather balloon, he said. 
In fact, looking back, the military's sudden change of story from flying disc to weather balloon made many people rather suspicious. This re-evaluation of Roswell started in the late 1970s, at a time when trust in the government had eroded in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate. To prove a government cover-up, ufologists like Friedman interviewed hundreds of people supposedly connected to what happened at Roswell and collected stacks of official documents, some more authentic than others. Their conclusion? That the first story, the flying disc story, was the real truth. An alien spaceship had crashed into the desert. The government had recovered both the craft and the bodies of the aliens inside and then perpetrated a cover-up. For its part, the government maintained that it was, in fact, a weather balloon. Then, in 1994, a few years after the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union, the military spoke out about Roswell again. This time, they said the device that had crashed was part of a top-secret Cold War operation known as Project Mogul. Its purpose was to keep an eye, an ear actually, on Soviet nuclear capabilities by listening for sound waves from an atomic bomb detonation. The UFO researchers, as well as a lot of other people, didn't buy it. The military just demonstrated that it had lied once. Why should it be trusted now to tell the truth? And so the debate over what really happened at Roswell and what the government is hiding continues to this day. But this is just the tip of the iceberg with Roswell. There are a ton of books, stories, websites, podcasts, blogs, documentaries. This particular rabbit hole goes deeper than you can possibly imagine. If you want to know more, Google Roswell, and I guarantee you'll be occupied for at least the rest of the decade. The events at Roswell remain central to those who think extraterrestrial life has visited Earth. And despite decades of rehashing the details of what happened, questions still linger, especially about the military. If they admitted to lying the first time, why trust them now? What else could they be hiding? Other alien contact? Technology that could make life on Earth better? Or help us achieve interstellar travel? If aliens did crash land at Roswell, does that incident show that the government will encourage intergalactic relations or simply keep people in the dark? Getting back to the military's most recent claim that they were running a top-secret nuclear monitoring operation nearby, Roswell was the home of the Army's 509th Division, the squad that dropped the atomic bombs on Japan. So it makes complete sense that there would be nuclear-related activity going on. No doubt the military came to Roswell because the surrounding landscape was so empty, a good place to test weapons like atomic bombs and machinery. On the flip side, maybe it's not surprising to think that aliens come to these places for the same reason. If you're going to put the proverbial toe in the water, you probably want to do it in a less populated area where you might not be noticed. But no matter what you believe, the rumors swirling around Roswell put it on the map as a destination. And that's something the city has milked for everything it's worth. Carved wooden green alien statues stand sentry in front of the majority of hotels. Businesses advertise with space-themed signs and alien puns. The city even uses a UFO as part of its official logo. Three blocks of Main Street are cordoned off for pedestrians only. Vendors line both sides of the street, mostly food, t-shirts, and alien-themed bric-a-brac but also some weird religious stuff, including some sort of Buddhist UFO sect. Musical acts rotate through the main stage on the front lawn of the Chavez County Courthouse. 
Under big old deciduous shade trees, attendees can make their own tinfoil hats using foil, feathers, pom-poms, and pipe cleaners. What are you making? Uh, some uh, some uh, foil hats. Why? Super Keeping the, the signals away. Yeah. I was just trying to be safe, you know? That's what it's all about, being safe. There's a fair amount of schlocky tourist stuff, and most of the people I talked to came to Roswell for the novelty of it all, a funny adventure to tell the folks back home about. But while the event itself seems lighthearted and silly, almost everyone I talked to did think aliens were out there. I mean, it was a military Air Force base. We have one of the largest runways in southeastern New Mexico. We have um, missile silos underneath. Um, there's so many things here that would attract aliens or extraterrestrial life um, to Roswell. And so, yeah, I do believe. Even if they never actually made an appearance in Roswell. I don't think anything happened out there, uh, at least not flying saucer style. Have aliens visited Earth? It's possible. Can I prove it? No. A block away, volunteers and staff dart in and out of an office building, trying to keep events running on time. Radios squawk out requests for more chairs or ice or tinfoil, and overseeing all of it is Kathy Lay. She's only been doing this job for six years, but the festival has been going on since 1996. It was kind of a corporate effort to try to do something fun for the community. Brussels wasn't really that famous at that time, um, but they decided they were going to do that. They did gurney bed races down the main street with aliens strapped to them to see who could push them down the fastest. They did all kinds of alien-like boxcar derbies where they had UFOs and things and were rolling them down main street. It was all just kind of playful and very fun and very small. But the next year was the 50th anniversary of the Roswell incident. And you had the Independence Day movie came out. You had Stanton Friedman, who was writing all of his books. Stanton Friedman is the UFO researcher I mentioned earlier, whose books sparked renewed interest in Roswell. There was a lot of media that began to surround Roswell, and they had heard in the media that we had a festival. So for the 50th anniversary, this was like a madhouse. They had those... Um, vans that have the big satellite dishes because you couldn't just like they actually had all this huge equipment that was parked all up and down the streets and so it was after that it just became rocketed into a world famous festival people come from all over hotels book up fast when i checked into my hotel which i'd reserved well in advance i was told that every hotel in town was full anyone trying to come to this last minute was going to be in the car a little while longer we book all of our hotel rooms. People are booking in Artesia, Carlsbad, Ruidoso, and they're all like 70 miles away. We're booking hotels all over. That's Juliana Halverston, co-chair for the festival. She says a lot of people come for the kitsch. The pet contest, Saturday morning at 10 a.m., and then the uh, people contest, the... Uh, the at, at 3 p.m. At 3 p.m., the Army National Guard band is coming at 12.30 p.m. Um, we've got the light parade at 9 p.m. Yes. Then, Kathy says, there are the cool science exhibits that the city gets on loan just for the festival. We have the Wheels of Wonder, mm -hmm. which is a mobile museum that has, this year it's been put together by the New Mexico Museum of Space History, and it features Apollo missions and the future of space travel. The city of Roswell's official position is one of belief. The city has embraced its brand. 
Although privately, there's a little more skepticism. I think something happened. We don't know if it was outside of space or if it was one of our things. We, I don't really know. I think we would be very arrogant to think that we're the only creation that exists. Yeah, I believe there's life out there maybe, but not aliens that are abducting people and stuff. <laughs> you, know, you know, there's probably life out there, but, you know, just amoebas or something. <laughs> it's just... Now, if tinfoil hats and gurney races and alien t-shirts aren't your thing, I'd suggest leaving the fray to step into the relative quiet and teeth-chattering cold of the UFO Research Library. They're the largest, or no, second largest, research library on UFOs and, and resources on UFOs in the whole world. There's only one that's bigger, the Vatican. That is the largest research library in the world on UFOs. Where's our, we're the second largest. <laughs> I found that to be one of the most interesting little tidbits. I couldn't verify that, although the Vatican archives span 12 centuries on some 53 miles of shelving. So who knows? But here in the UFO library, the main room is full up with books about UFOs, star children, Roswell, pretty much anything UFO or alien related. Fiction, nonfiction, the whole range. You'll be glad to know that there are some Bigfoot books in there, too. The archives, or at least part of the archives, are housed in the room next door. Six-foot-high shelves hold archival boxes filled with pamphlets, newspaper clippings, magazine articles, military documents, and even the papers of retired NASA scientists. And this is just a fraction of the collection. There's a ton more stuff in the back, all cataloged in a database. If you wanted to write the definitive history of UFOs, I recommend you start here. Today, the library doesn't have many people in it, just a few dedicated researchers. But it's attached to what is probably the town's biggest draw, the UFO Museum. Now, the UFO Museum, last year they had 10,000 people that actually bought tickets at the UFO Museum. And this was just during the festival, not like before and after. Three days. They have almost a, about a quarter million people go through that museum in a year. And during the weekend of the festival, this is where you'll find the serious ufologists, the authors and the lecturers that have spent decades poring over the details of Roswell and other alleged UFO sightings. Donald R. Schmidt, I'm a best-selling investigative author, and I'm one of the co-founders of the museum here. Roswell has certainly become a household word and not synonymous with balloon. It clearly is synonymous with government cover-up and crashed UFO. Don Schmidt is one of the ufologists lecturing at this year's events. He's a true believer, but he says he didn't always buy into the Roswell story. I thought we would make a single weekend jaw to New Mexico and prove that it was a balloon, a weather balloon as the government still maintains, or, or something just as prosaic, just as conventional. And here we are all these years later, and we've had five archaeological digs at uh, the crash site. But I believe more importantly, we've tracked down and we've interviewed over 600 witnesses, either directly or indirectly involved. So I went from a skeptic to where now when I'm asked, do you believe? I say no, but I'm 99% convinced. I, I proved it to myself, and uh, 
I don't see anybody or any alternative explanation that even comes close. And just what was it that changed his mind? The strangest, most bizarre material, paper-thin, metal-like material that was weightless in your hands, nearly indestructible material. You could crumble, you could crease, you could fold, wad up into a ball. And when you'd place it onto a smooth surface or onto the floor, it would just unravel and smooth right out. It flowed like water right before your eyes. In other words, it had perfect memory. And unanimously, all the witnesses, whether they were cowboys or generals in the military, that's what they have described to us. And it turned me from being a skeptic to, my God, we're potentially talking about the biggest story of the millennium because we're truly talking about a technology well beyond ours. And then, where is it from? There's a supposed piece of this in the museum, although it looks like it could be from a tin can, and more than a few ufologists said it was just trash. In addition to this material, Don thinks the military got quite a bit of technology from the crash, like fiber optics, which we also heard from Dennis Balthaser a little earlier. Other people I talked to mentioned things like Kevlar and night vision, and the integrated circuit, a.k.a. the transistor. I will note here that a quick search on Google turned up a bunch of scientific papers and historical information that disputes these claims. In fact, a lot doesn't add up about their stories. But maybe that's just a red herring planted by the authorities. Anyway, despite all this supposed technological treasure, Don alleges that the government still doesn't understand what actually crashed in Roswell. To this day, I still have the position that it's a cover-up of ignorance that they still don't have any answers. Uh, they can't find the on button. And quite simply, they cannot bridge the technology. In our human arrogance, the thought that, you know, that we could possibly just reverse engineer something that might be a hundred years, thousand years, 10,000 years ahead of us, and that we could just pick up where they left off, that type of thing. You could take something as simple as a toaster, and teleport it back in time, say, back to the Middle Ages, and you might be able to take it apart, put it back together again. But if you can't plug it in, never going to work. Never going to work. He makes an interesting point. If you think back to the last episode, the farthest that humans have ever gotten in space is to the moon. In astronomical terms, that's not very far. So for an advanced civilization to reach Earth with living beings, not robots, on board would suggest that they have technology much more sophisticated than ours. Technology that might almost seem like magic to us because it's so advanced. It does beg the question, though, of how a terribly advanced intergalactic spacecraft managed to make it all the way here through the dangers of space, only to crash in some remote piece of ranch land. Also, why would they be visiting us? If we're so technologically inferior, what would be the point? What could we possibly have to offer them? But those are the kinds of questions that skeptics ask, and Don Schmidt has something to say to the skeptics. I cite the example of uh, Bill Clinton, the last time he was on Jimmy Kimmel. And he went on and on and on. I had eight years in the Oval Office, and I couldn't get the truth about Roswell. So please, Mr. Skeptic, Mrs. Scoffer, do you know more than the president does? Who are your sources? I'd love to hear who your sources are, because even the president 
can't get the truth about this. So please don't insult anyone's intelligence by claiming you have the answer. Schmidt seems to think that he does have the answer. He is certain that aliens crash-landed at Roswell and that the government covered it up, although he doesn't have the concrete evidence that would convince the scientific community. That lack of acceptable proof is a big problem. Because of that, even some of the Roswell experts remain uncertain about exactly what went down here. Kevin Randall is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force with a PhD in psychology. Kevin is probably best known for the very thorough research he's done on an Air Force program known as Project Blue Book. The easiest explanation, Project Blue Book was the official Air Force investigation of UFOs. Why did they open it? Well, 1947 is when it started, and Kenneth Arnold, a civilian pilot, because of his business, he had a private airplane, and he would fly around to the various places he needed to be. And he was uh, traveling near Mount Rainier, Washington, and he saw these nine objects uh, kind of weaving in and out of the peaks that he thought were unusual looking, couldn't see a tail on them, and they were uh, traveling at what he estimated at a speed like 1,800 miles an hour, and we had nothing that could do that. His story blew up, and then for the next two weeks, you had all these stories in the newspaper about flying discs, flying saucers, and all of this sort of thing. And then on July 8th, you had the story from the Roswell Daily Record, which is uh, the Roswell Army Airfield had captured a flying saucer. And then the next day, the Army and Navy moved in to stop the stories of the saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. But there was a panic in the Pentagon. What if this is, what if this is uh, Soviet? And the outgrowth of that was the general in charge, uh, Nathan Twining, said we need to have a project. It should be classified. The military named it Project Sign, which eventually became Project Grudge, which became Project Blue Book. Although, interestingly, the events at Roswell were not among the incidents officially investigated by the Air Force, which some people believe is because the U.S. government already knew what had happened there. They just weren't talking about it. In 1969, the Air Force shuttered Project Blue Book, which Kevin thinks was a mistake. He points out that there were roughly 700 sightings during Project Blue Book that remain unidentified, sightings that couldn't be chalked up to other explanations. But that wasn't Project Blue Book's mission. Their job was to identify UFOs, not to investigate them. So they didn't. Or if they did, they kept it quiet. Randall thinks the government isn't being transparent about any of these sightings, including Roswell. They started out with the idea, we've got to keep this secret because people would panic. And it was right after World War II, and people would have panicked. Uh, and they've just maintained that since then. He does think something happened at Roswell. But unlike Don... He's more skeptical about the supposed evidence. I'm not certain. And, and, and I vacillate. I vacillate. I, I, at one point, I thought the Roswell case was so robust. I mean, this is it. We've got it here. And then we found witnesses blowing up on us and stories not panning out. Documentation would be wonderful and we just can't find any, which is very problematic and very worrisome to somebody like me. We have the FBI telex and we have newspaper articles, and then we have the eyewitness testimony, and that's really all we have at the moment. And for me, I would like something more. I would like to go a little bit deeper. I'd like to have, I would like to be able to prove it. And although he was once certain that aliens had landed at Roswell, he's not convinced anymore. Uh, I, I chased a story. A guy told me uh, he knew someone who had been a pilot on Air Force One, and he flew Kennedy to look at the bodies. And I thought, great. Finally found the guy. Turned out he had been a substitute pilot on Air Force One, he had flown Kennedy around, and he himself had seen a flying saucer, a UFO, 
but he had not taken Kennedy to see the bodies. So I got to the story, it just wasn't all there. Randall is one of the highlighted speakers at the festival. When I arrive at his afternoon talk, entitled Roswell in the 21st Century, I catch the tail end of the previous lecture. It's by a man named Travis Walton, a former forestry worker who says he was abducted by aliens in 1975. The room is packed, standing room only. New Age music plays as an inspirational video flits across the projector screen. The audience is rapt. But when it's over, the majority of them leaves. A small trickle of people file in, and the room is only about half full for Randall's talk. Uh, it probably would be better for Can you hear me in the back? I can't help but wonder if Randall's more measured approach, his willingness to question what actually happened here, might be disappointing to some of the biggest UFO enthusiasts. To be clear, while Randall's not sure what went down in 1947, he does think something happened. If there was nothing to flying saucers other than hallucinations, illusions, illusions, misidentifications, and hoaxes, and there was nothing to the Roswell crash, then why, the day after it was announced the military had captured a flying saucer, there was a campaign to suppress it? Why did the Air Force work so hard in 1995 to convince everybody that there was nothing to it? We do not have that 100% proof. We have an event that everybody agrees took place, which was something fell. We have some documentation about it, proving that the the event took place. We have the eyewitness testimony from people who are credible and people who we clearly can put there. But we don't have the evidence, and that's a problem. I, too, think something happened at Roswell, but I'm inclined to believe the military's claims about Project Mogul, the secret program keeping tabs on the Soviets' nuclear capabilities. That seems likely, especially given Roswell's history. However, I can also understand why the military's ever-shifting story raises eyebrows, why people don't trust the government, why they think this was something more than just a military operation. People want to know what happened here in 1947. The mystery intrigues them whether or not they believe aliens visited us. That's why they drive miles out of their way across the desert to spend three hot July days listening to lectures on UFOs or making tinfoil hats. It's sheer curiosity. Did someone land here? Who were they? What did they want? That in some cases is tinged with deep mistrust of the government. Why are you hiding this from us? If there's someone else out there, don't we have the right to know? It's a battle of trust and conspiracy, and the endurance of the Roswell story speaks to something deeply American. Because let's face it, if we totally trusted the government on everything, there would be no Roswell story even if Area 51 was chock full of saucers. And I can also understand why their suspicion might have been heightened when, in 2017, news broke about the Pentagon's secret UFO program. The Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And it was maybe 20 to 30 scientists and experts to do various kinds of investigations into cases that came to them, often through the CIA or the Navy or some other agencies. And the U.S. military wouldn't put money and time and personnel into something unless they actually thought it was worth investigating, right? But is it actually aliens or just plain old ordinary military secrets? That's coming up on the next episode of Wild Thing, Space Invaders. 
If you're enjoying Wild Thing, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to good stories. And definitely tell your friends, because all of this really helps get the word out about the show and makes another season possible. You can find at Wild Thing Pod on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word, for more information about the show. And of course, for some cool stickers. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. Our executive producer is Scott Carney. Editing is by Alicia Lipinski. And the score and sound mixing come from Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz.